because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 32 to 41 this morning. Again, if you need an outline, there are some on the table in the back of the foyer, and you could follow along that way if that might help you. We will be thinking about the distress and sorrow of Jesus from Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 41. You might recall that this is the Thursday night before Jesus is crucified Friday morning. This is the last night with his disciples. We spoke last Sunday of the previous passage on Jesus' last supper with his disciples, him calling out Judas as his traitor. Judas leaves, and Jesus has some final words with his disciples. He does the high priestly prayer of John 17. They leave there, and they make their way here to the Garden of Gethsemane, just across Jerusalem, through the Kidron Valley, right at the foot of the hill, the Mount of Olives, right across from Jerusalem. And so that's where we pick up the story here in Mark 14, verses 32 to 41. I'll read to 42. Hear then the word of the Lord. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. Then he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. Simon, are you sleeping? He asked Peter, couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this clear and emotional picture into the life and ministry of Jesus Christ before his resurrection. Lord, there are no other passages in the Bible that compare to the human distress that Jesus feels in this moment. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our, our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our feelings to really get a, a feel. I know we can't get a full, comprehensive feel of what Jesus felt. No one can. But we pray that we would get an accurate, truth-filled, spirit-empowered feeling, a sense of the weight, the agony, the distress, the sorrow that Jesus felt in this garden. So would your spirit help us? Because apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us now because of what Christ has done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
In this passage, God wants us to see Jesus. In the whole book of Mark, God wants us to see Jesus. But particularly in this passage, we get a special glimpse into the life of Jesus that's different than really any, any other passage in the Gospel according to Mark and really any other point in Jesus' life and existence. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, well, you know what? I don't even believe in the Bible. I don't know if I believe that Jesus existed or that Jesus was in the garden or that he died on the cross or he rose from the dead, quite frankly. The winners of history get to write history. And so if they win, then they get to write the history books. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if those are their real names, wrote these books. And so they get to make up whatever story they want. And that's why I don't believe the Bible. If you're not a Christian, you might be thinking that. Uh, we weren't there when this was written. We weren't there in the garden. So we are taking the word of those who wrote this. And so I want to address that, that if, if you feel that, that you can't trust the Bible. Maybe it's a bunch of myths or it's, uh, it's something that the followers did to puff up uh, Jesus with, with a lot of fake truths to delude and trick people to following their new religion. I mean, if you look at this passage, um, the reason why I think we can trust it is that it is unique in ancient liter literature among all hero stories of all groups and all cultures. I mean, think about it. Jesus opens up his heart to God here. And he opens up his heart to his readers or the readers of this text. And he shows his distress, his fear, and quite frankly, his desire to go another way. He's shaken. He's fearful. He feels vulnerable. And he doesn't come across as courageous as other heroes in other cultures who are the ones that are worshipped or followed in their day. It's, it's actually, if you compare it in a sense, I mean, if you don't get the on the surface of things, it's actually a pitiful picture of someone who you'd follow with your whole life and call Lord of all, Lord of lords and King of kings. I mean, if you're making up a story of who Jesus was and you wanted people to follow Jesus and bow down their whole lives to him as Lord, then you wouldn't describe him as a stressed out man in weakness and in sorrow and in trembling and in fear. You wouldn't write this passage. Why did Mark write this passage? Because it happened. Amen. Because it's true. It's not made up. It happened. And so we do well to think about this passage. It really wouldn't serve any Christian well to make up a story like this if they're trying to create a religion. And so what do we need? We need what everyone needs. Uh, we need to, to see Jesus here in this unique picture of his shock, his fear, his distress, his trouble, and his sorrow. So here's the main idea. If you're taking notes or if you have this, you'll see the main idea stated there in the outline. It's to understand and feel Jesus' sorrow and distress in Gethsemane. That's what God wants us to do this morning from this passage, to understand a little bit better and feel a little bit deeper the distress and sorrow that Jesus felt. And we'll do that by answering this question. Why was Jesus distressed? Why was he sorrowful? Why was he scared? Why was he shocked? Why make the prayer request that he made here in this garden? There are three reasons why Jesus felt this sorrow. And hopefully if you understand these reasons, you can understand his sorrow and feel, feel it as well. Number one, I'll tell you the three and then we'll go through it. Well, I'll tell you one at a time. Number one, because Jesus felt this sorrow and distress because his disciples checked out on him. 
or that his disciples check out on him. They check out. He's there. He asks for their help. He asks for their company. He asks for their prayer. And what do they do? They fall asleep. They check out on him. They don't. So there's there's two parts to this, at least, uh, with, with them checking out on him. Number one, they don't feel his deep distress. They should have felt it. it look at verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he what? After he took Peter, James, and John, verse 33, what did, what did it say? What does it say? He what? He became troubled. Now, I want you to read that word became again, or my translation says, he began to be deeply distressed. This is a new moment in Jesus' experience. He always knew he was going to the cross. He predicted it several times. He knew he was going to rise from the dead. He knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He just predicted that at dinner that evening. So he's not tricked by any of this. But now, at this point, reality is beginning to sink in. Not that he was delusional, but he's starting to feel the pressure of the moment. He begins, for the first time, to feel distressed and horrified. It says here, my translation, deeply distressed. In verse, in the next verse, verse 34, he says, my soul is swallowed up in what? In sorrow. To the point of what? Death. Death. I mean, he's so burdened that he could literally die. Now, you felt burdens in your life, I'm sure. You felt sorrow. You've been there. You've been distressed. But Jesus here feels distressed to the point of death. And so if you're Peter, James, and John, you're in the inner circle of Jesus. You've hung out with him for three years of your life or two years of your life. I'm not sure exactly when they started following Jesus in his three-year ministry, but somewhere in there, about two to three years of your life, you've been following this man around, and he's been utterly confident, right, in the face of opposition, in the face of questions, in the face of demon-possessed people, in the face of his own disciples, in the face of a storm. Jesus has always been cool, calm, collected, and confident. And yet here... He begins to be distressed. And that does not pique the curiosity of the disciples. They don't scratch their head and think, something's different here. But something was different here. And that's why Jesus feels even more alone. Because if they would have been observing him for the last two years, which they have, they should have noticed that this is unique. Jesus has been bearing their burdens for so long, right? Couldn't they as friends just say, Lord, something looks like something's wrong with you. Are you okay? There's no, no concern for him. No concern for his stress. You know when you feel stressed out and you're around, you could, you could feel this in church. You could even feel it this morning. You could feel stressed out and you're around people and everyone's smiling. And not that we shouldn't smile if you're happy, smile. But my point is, everyone's around you feeling like life is going on and they're okay. And you feel stressed and troubled. And you feel like no one can relate to you even in the midst of People who are church family or literal biological family. And here's Jesus with his three closest friends telling them he's sorrowful to the point of death and they take a nap. That's what happens. They, they, They take a nap. They're tired. Wake me up and tell me about it in the morning. Perhaps. So verse 37 says, going down to verse 37, let's see what happens here. Uh, This is after the prayer, at least the first prayer. Then he came and found them What? Sleeping, And so he says to Simon, and he does question the, the three of them, Are you sleeping, Simon? He asked Peter, Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Could you stay awake for one hour? 
They couldn't even stay awake for an hour. Now think about your close friend. If your closest friend was in sorrow, I just saw today from one of my friends, he, he posted a picture of his dad who was there uh, half asleep working on a laptop in a hospital chair while his wife was, was, was there recovering. And he said, this is my dad who, you know, the dedication of my dad to, to my mom, where even in the midst of the, the craziest of moments, he's just there trying to stay awake and persevere with, with his wife. And so you, you look at this, and Jesus is saying, I'm in the most stressed out moment of my life, and it's not even a normal stress. I can barely walk. I'm falling on the ground praying. And they, they, don't, get, they don't get the cue. They don't get the clue. Not even one hour. You guys, I know you're tired. I know it's been a long day. You couldn't stay awake one hour with me. And he's not trying to give them a guilt trip. He's just literally burdened and needing, wanting company. Wanting sympathy. Wanting someone around him who's praying alongside of him. Now, why why does Jesus want them to pray? Look at verse 38. Why does he want them to pray? He says, stay awake and pray. Why? So that you won't enter into temptation. And then he says, why you need to be praying? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, who's Jesus concerned about here? Who's temptation? His disciples. In the moment of his deepest distress, who is he caring about? Them. See the love here, the selflessness? And in his deepest distress, they can't can't even give a thought to him about his distress. Even in his moment of deepest distress, he's like, you guys need to pray for your temptation. Now, they don't pray. Why should they have been praying? What temptation is Jesus talking about here that they're about to enter? Do you remember Mark? Yeah, unbelief. Mark 14. Do you remember 1427? Jesus told them just a few moments ago on their way to the garden. What did he say? It is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Uh, And then verse 30, he says, I assure you today, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will all deny me or you'll deny me three times, Peter. Uh, In verse 27, he says, all of you will run away. And what did they say? Did they agree with Jesus? No. Were they convinced by him? He did say, I assure you. Were they assured? No. no. No, Jesus, you're wrong. We won't deny you. We won't run away from you. It's not happening. You don't know our hearts. You can't judge me, Jesus. Don't judge me. Didn't you say judge not? Lest you be judged. Don't judge me, Jesus. And he's like, no, you're gonna, I assure you you're going to fall. No, no, I'm not. And then when they're there in the moment of distress, he's like, well, you should be praying because your spirit is... Willing, but your flesh is weak. You're about to enter into temptation. Prayer will give you spiritual what? Strength, right? But they're so confident that they feel like they don't even need to what? I'm not going to deny you. You're wrong. You're so wrong. I don't even need to pray. I can take a nap. And I'll still be okay spiritually with this temptation. I got this. We got this. The 11 of us get it. We're stronger than you think, Jesus. We don't need to pray. We need... To sleep. Prayerlessness, or I should say it this way, prayerless confidence in following Jesus is spiritual insanity. This is self-confidence gone delusional. They're deluded. Well, first of all, you're already deluded to say Jesus is wrong, first. And secondly, to go into the garden where you're going to get the temptation and then not pray... You're already saying Jesus is wrong, and now you're saying not only is Jesus wrong, I don't even need prayer. That's how insane they are at this moment. This is how blind or how thick 
their heads are right now, how, how dull they are spiritually to the reality of the moment. And Jesus tells them why you need to pray. The spirit is willing, but the what? The flesh is weak. Now, the flesh there, it just means their physical bodies. You're, you're going to be tired. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be sleepy. So the challenge here is weak physical bodies that cry out for appeasement, whether it's sleep or food or you could even be socializing or relaxing. When you give in to the physical appeasement of your body, your bodies are not evil. God made it good. But when you give in to the physical appeasement, to the neglect of spiritual nourishment and health, you're on your way into falling into temptation. Amen. You're on your way into falling into temptation. Don't think you got this. You don't got, you don't got it. We need to take heed. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, So whoever thinks he stands must take heed or be careful lest he fall. Jesus' scriptural and solemn warning was quickly dismissed. And they were in grave spiritual danger and they could not even see it. They should have heeded Jesus' call to prayer. And we should heed that same call. Well One study Bible says this, Well-intentioned believers can easily fail to fulfill their calling by merely giving in to various physical needs or desires. D.A. Carson writes, Spiritual eagerness is often accompanied by carnal weakness, a danger amply experienced by successive generations of Christians. Have you ever felt that? Spiritual eagerness, Lord, I'm going to go hard after you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek your face. I want to be near you, nearer my God to thee. You sing songs like that. And then you just knock out and fall asleep, right? <laughs> Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast. I'm going to fast, Lord, for two meals. And then like five minutes and you're like, oh, I'm so hungry. I just, you know, cheat a little bit here. Snickers bar, perhaps. Um, the point is, in great spiritual eagerness, we need to be aware of our physical weakness. Amen. And not only do we need to be aware, we need to fight against it. We need to discipline ourselves. Even in trial here, again, this is just so sweet of Jesus. Even in this trial, he's seeking to serve them and bless them for their good of their souls. Whenever you feel overwhelmed in trial and in pressure, as, mo- as much as possible, look around and seek to help someone, help, help someone else enjoy and follow Jesus. And that will help you deal with your, your distress. When I visited one of our church members uh, in, I guess, a convalescent home this past week, I just... Shared with them some prayer requests of the church members. Here are some other people you could be praying for in the church. Why? Because when you pray for others and just get kind of get your mind a little bit off of your own pressure and you bear the burdens of others, it kind of makes your burden a little bit lighter itself. Amen. That's what Jesus is doing here. He has the deepest, heaviest burden ever that any human's ever carried right now in this moment, and he's caring about other people. That's just spiritual maturity. Amen. Thinking about others. If you're not a Christian... Let me say this to you. Perhaps you've, aband- perhaps you've been abandoned and you feel alone. Maybe even those closest to you have hurt you and cut you the deepest. Jesus understands. And he longs to help you so that you would never truly be alone. I can't say that Christians never feel like they're alone. It's not true. We do. But if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Christians are never really alone. Now, we feel that sometimes because we're a little bit deluded ourselves, but we're never really alone as Christians. Amen. And if you're not a Christian, you don't have to be alone either. You don't have to go through your trials and, and your struggles alone. You can have a church family that will go around you, that will come around you and help you. But even, quite frankly, our church family fails us, right? I'm not saying it's useless. Jesus didn't think the disciples were useless. Just stay away. I'm going to pray by myself. No, he still asked for help. 
But even in asking for help, his ultimate help came from God himself. And so, if you're not a Christian, I invite you to think about Jesus and go to Jesus who can understand your pain. If you're a Christian, here's what God's telling you this morning. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Okay, Colossians 4.2 Devote yourself to prayer. Not just praying on the side, but be devoted to prayer. Stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Have you been alert in your prayer life? And have you been, would you say, just characterizing your own life, no one else is going to critique you, just critique yourself here. Would you, could you say, my life is characterized by a devotion to prayer? As I was studying this passage, I started getting convicted myself. I started praying. I went through the members list, started praying through the different members, and I got sleepy. Like, you know, like three minutes in, I'm like, what? Come on, I've been studying this all week. Like, I know I'm not supposed to be sleepy. Like, three minutes. I'm, I'm, I couldn't question God. I mean, I feel like God's looking at me like, really? Like, you know, um, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. Devote time every day for prayer. Here's my challenge to you, practical one. Double your prayer time. Okay, I don't know what it is. You're saying, well, I only pray for one minute. Well, pray for two minutes. I only pray for three minutes. Pray for six minutes. I only pray for five minutes. Pray for ten minutes. Now, if you're like, well, I pray for an hour. Maybe that might be a little bit much to double that. But, you know, uh, extend your prayers. If you're one of the hour a day prayer warriors, praise God for that. Um, pray for us as a church family. I'm sure you do if you're praying for an hour. But I would even challenge you to extend prayer time. Challenge yourself to pray more. This week, I'm not saying in the future, don't just have that good thought. I'm asking you if you're taking notes, even write down some resolution. I resolve that I will pray five minutes a day where without distraction. Turn off the phone, throw it across, put it in another room, and just ten minutes I'm going to pray without ceasing and just focus on God. Devote time to prayer. For a church family, what does this mean for us? We need to pray as a what? As a church, right? Churches do not grow strong by being prayerless as a church. Now, we should be praying on our own at home, but even getting together to pray. So I would invite you and challenge you to go to prayer meeting on Sunday nights if you're committed to this church as a member of the church. Go to prayer meetings on Sunday nights. Now, tonight is, or today is Father's Day, so you might have plans. I I'm not trying to guilt trip you today of all days to be here tonight, but we will be here, at least me and my kids, for Father's Day. Uh, but if you will be here tonight for prayer, then we'll be here. Um, but either way, if, if you're not coming tonight, okay, I do understand Father's Day, I would challenge you to come to prayer meeting. If you can't come every Sunday, come once a month. If you can come more than once a month, go twice a month. Either way, even that, here, let me give you another practical application. If you can't do that, because some of you, I mean, health-wise and driving in dark, I, understand, I get that. Pray with people here before you leave. Today, this morning. Share with each other. We greet each other. Ask each other for prayer. And pray for each other now. Hey, let's pray. Can we pray right now? And pray with them right now. That's what would be the application here, right? Disciples were checking out on Jesus, leaving him alone. Let's not leave each other alone. Let's pray for each other as a church family. Number two. Okay, that's the first reason why Jesus was distressed, because his disciples checked out on him. Number two, second reason why Jesus was distressed. He was distressed and sorrowful because his father denies his request. His father denies his request. And this is the reason why he's distressed. The main reason why he's distressed. His father denies his request. So he goes on a little farther, verse 35. Go back to verse 35. He went a little farther. He fell to the ground and he he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So there he is. That's his prayer request. 
Let this hour pass through me, this moment, this assignment. If you go to verse 36, he, he, he goes further and says, it, or Mark starts to quote him, and he said, Abba, Father, by the way, that's a statement of intimacy, right? His dad who cares for him on, on Father's Day, this is appropriate, right? Many fathers care for us and show the love of God the Father. And oftentimes we, myself included, fail as fathers to show that kind of care to our children. And yet God the Father, whether by good example or by bad example, we point to the Father, the true Father in heaven. And here's Jesus talking to the Father. Abba, Father, verse 36, all things are possible for you. You're omnipotent. You are in heaven. You do whatever you please. Psalm 115, verse 3. Nothing is too difficult for God. All things are possible for God. All things, Lord, or Father, are possible for you. Here's the prayer request. Take this cup away from me. There it is. Take this cup away from me. Now, Jesus knew God's plan. I told you, we've been studying Mark. He's predicted it. He knows what he has to do. He knows he has to die. He knows he has to be arrested. And yet he still prays what? That the cup would be what? Removed. Removed. Taken away. Is this a sinful prayer? Obvious answer, no. Jesus never sinned, right? Sometimes we say we want to pray according to God's will, which means we try to figure out his sovereign will of decree, his eternal plan that is hidden from us, and we just want to pray according to that will as if we could figure it out. That's not when we say pray according to God's will. We're not talking about pray according to God's will of decree. You don't know his plan. You pray according to God's will of command, what he has revealed in Scripture. So you pray those prayers, and if it's biblically acceptable, you pray it, and then you let God decree what he decrees. And that's why Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but what? Your will be done. Your will of decree. Your plan. Let your plan be accomplished. But, but just because God has a plan doesn't mean we don't pray, right? If someone, if a, we have some members who have cancer, if, if a member gets cancer and we pray for healing, we do pray that. We should pray that. Now, is that God's will of decree? Do we know God's plan? Yes or no? Do we know God's specific plan? No, No, we don't. But can we pray for healing? Yes. And at the end of our prayer, we say, not my will, but yours be done. But we still pray it. Jesus is not a fatalist. You know what a fatalist is? Fatalism, and you've got to be careful. If you you read the Bible a lot and you're big on theology and the sovereignty of God and God's plan from beginning to end and all our days are written in God's book before there was even one of them, Psalm 139, we can start to reason from that sinfully. We can sinfully reason from God's sovereign control and plan that therefore if God knows everything, I don't need to pray. It's all up to fate anyways. That's sinful thinking. Not that God controls everything and plans everything. That's not. That's biblical thinking. But when you reason from that, that I don't need to pray... That's fatalism. And that's sinful. Well, God has his plan anyways. What good is prayer? That's what Satan wants you to think. Jesus was not a fatalist. He doesn't throw his hands up in the air and reduce human responsibility or genuine communion with God. He's going to talk to God. And God is going to listen to him. And when you pray, God listens when you come in the name of Jesus. He's not a genie who's going to say yes to every prayer or request you. Pray, but he will listen and he will commune with you. He will hear you and he will draw near to you and you will draw near to him. Because it's not just about requests, yes and no. God's not, you know, he's not like at the DMV where he's just kind of stamping yes or no, approval or non-approval to request. He's your father and he wants to spend time with his child. 
So we draw near. Jesus here draws near. Now, we, remember we learned about compatibilism last week? God is in control of everything, and yet we have human responsibility. And they both, though we don't understand exactly how they are together, we know that they both are together. And if that's true, here is a good example of it. Jesus knows God's sovereign plan, and yet he has a responsibility to, re- to commune with God and to pray to God and to trust God in actual real time. And so just like last week, we destroyed your excuse to sin based on God's sovereignty. Well, God knew I was going to sin, so I guess it's not my fault. Wrong. Uh, we talked about that last week, right? This week, here's the destruction, uh, what compatibilism destroys. Well, God knows everything, so I don't have to pray. Wrong. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he's in control. Yes, he hears us. Yes, he interacts with us. Yes, we must pray. Now, why is he stressed? What is his prayer request? Remove or take this what from me? Take the what from me? The cup. What is the cup? The cup of wrath. So Mark 10.45. What does Mark 10.45 say? Mark 10.45, Jesus says, when he's talking to his disciples and they're arguing about who the greatest is, he says in verse 44, whoever wants to be first among you must be slave to all. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve and to what? Give his life as a? Ransom for many. Jesus is giving his life as a payment for our debt. As a ransom for God's wrath that is demanded of us. He is paying the judgment, the condemnation that we deserve for sins. The wages, to use a a Romans 6 term. The wages of sin is death. And who paid that wage? Jesus is paying that wage here as a ransom for many. That's what the text says. And so here's the cup of Jesus having to pay the condemnation, the wrath of God, the second death for the many here, at least in Mark 10, 45. Remember Mark 14, 22 and 24? Take this body, or take this, this is my body. In Mark 14, verse 24, this cup establishes the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for many. Remember we talked about that last week? That's this cup here. It's the, the cup of him shedding his blood to atone for our sins. If you're taking notes, we don't have time to turn here, but I'll read it to you. You can write this down. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. You can look at it later. Jeremiah 25, 15 and 16. I'll read it to you. It says this. This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah says, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations I am sending you to drink from it. They will drink Stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword I am sending among them. What is the cup? It's a cup of the wine of God's wrath. It's the sword. It's judgment for sin. It's condemnation. And so Paul says, he calls in Romans 3.25, the propitiation. Jesus is the propitiation. He's the wrath bearer. He bears our wrath in our place for our sins taking the judgment. You know that Romans 3.25 passage where it talks about Jesus as the propitiation on the cross. There's another translation for the word propitiation. Maybe a better translation. Mercy seat. Mercy seat is taking you back to the Old Testament picture. If, you, if you're fast enough, turn to Leviticus 16. Okay. If not, you can just listen. But turn to Leviticus 16. It's the third book of your Bible from the very front. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 16 and go to verse 11. Leviticus 16, verse 11, says this about the mercy seat. 
this, this propitiation, the sacrifice of Jesus. When Aaron presents the bull for his sin offering and makes atonement for himself and his household, he will slaughter the bull for his sin offering. So what is he, gonna, when is he, what is he going to do to the bull? He's going to slaughter it. He's going to kill the bull for a sin offering. Then go to verse 13, Leviticus 16, verse 13. He is to put the incense on the fire before Yahweh the Lord so that the cloud of incense covers the what? The mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat is the panel on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. So if you have a tabernacle, there's a tent. The first section rectangle is the holy place. The back cube is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. In that place was the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember Uzzah, one of David's servants who touched the Ark of the Covenant as it was traveling and he was struck dead by God. For touching the Ark of the Covenant is the holiest of objects in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. And on top of this covenant, the cover of it is the mercy seat with two cherubim, angels with their wings spread out over the mercy seat. And so the smoke or this incense is to cover the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies by Aaron. So the incense covers the mercy seat, verse 13, that is over the testimony or else he will what? Die. Die. If the incense doesn't cover the mercy seat, Aaron's dead. The high priest is dead. He better have incense covering that mercy seat when you go in there. Or he's dead. Verse 14. He has to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his fingers against the east side of the mercy seat. Then he will sprinkle some of the blood with his finger before the mercy seat seven times. When he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin... For the people's sin offering and brings its blood inside the veil, he must do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He is to sprinkle it against the mercy seat in front of it. He will purify the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. See what this what, what it costs to be purified? Because of the rebellious acts of God's people, it takes a bull. And a goat to be slaughtered with their blood sprinkled on the mercy seat of the presence of God so that they might be purified and reconciled to God. It costs life. The wages of sin is death. It's being slaughtered under the righteous judgment of God. And so Jesus is going to be slaughtered so that as the mercy seat, he brings us to God in, pure, in purity. Now to get one more step to get a little bit better idea of what this cup is. Let me read to you Revelation 20, verse 10. And, and verses 14 and 15. This is talking about the final judgment. Just listen though. Revelation 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them, this, uh, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet are. And they will be tormented. In the lake of fire. They will be tormented day and night forever. How long will the devil be tormented in hell? Or in the lake of fire? Forever. forever. And he's not partying with his pitchfork laughing at everyone. He will be tormented by who? The judge. Who's the judge? God. Forever and ever. Verse 14 though. says that death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the what? Lake of fire. Under the wrath of God. And how long will they be there? Forever. If you die 
apart from Jesus Christ, and your name is not written in the book of life, you'll be thrown into hell or the lake of fire forever to be tormented with the devil and the false, false prophet and the beast, according to Revelation 20. Forever. Eternal judgment and wrath for an infinite debt of sin that you've committed. You say, I haven't committed infinite debt of sin. I've only lived 40 years or 80 years or 90 years. How is that an infinite debt? It's not an infinite debt because of how many acts you've done. It's because of who you've done it against. Amen. How holy is God? Infinitely holy, right? And if God is infinitely holy, then one sin is an infinite offense de- de- demanding eternal suffering. One sin demands eternal suffering. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of sins. The wages of sin is death. Because God is holy and every time you sin, it's always a sin against God. Before you sin against anyone else, before you sin against your spouse or your children or your parents or your friends or your neighbors or your church members, before you sin against them, every single time you sin, it is a direct assault on the infinite holiness of God and it demands eternal punishment. And here's Jesus staring at this cup of infinite eternal punishment, not for one sinner, not for two sinners, but from sinners from every nation, tongue, tribe, and language. And he's going to drink all of it. What it would take you to suffer forever in hell, Jesus is going to drink on that cross. And not just for one, but for all who will repent from their sins and trust in him. That's the cup. No one can sympathize with this pain. Not even those in hell can. Those in hell get closest. They could, they could do one zillionth of, of it in the sense of, and, and they'll, never, they'll never exhaust it. But Jesus is not just going to stay in hell forever. Or he didn't go to hell. He's not going to be under God's wrath on the cross forever. But in those three hours of darkness as he hangs on the cross, he is exhausting the infinite wrath of God for every single sinner who will ever believe right there on the cross. And that's the cup he has to drink. Can you tell why he's stressed out? No one, no human will ever feel this burden. Amen. And if you're a Christian, you'll never even taste a drop of it. He drank it all. Jesus doesn't suffer martyrdom the way Christian martyrs die. You know, Christian martyrs, they die so courageously. You read the stories of, you know, the Church of England and different martyrs there, those who die for Christ. Stephen, right, when he's being stoned, he's, he's there with utter confidence, not like Jesus in this garden scene. Why? Because Christian martyrs die willingly, empowered and secure and hopeful because of what Christ has done. Amen. Jesus dies solitary and under divine condemnation. This is not a martyr's death. This is the one securing all the grace that every martyr will need to die by him not getting any of it himself. So what's his ultimate request? But he doesn't just pray that the cup would be passed. Verse 36. He prays something else. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what? Not my will, but what you will, but your will be done. So Jesus, even in his request for the cup to be passed, that's not his ultimate request. Is it a genuine request? Yes or no? Yes, it's a genuine prayer request. Please let this cup pass from me. But that's not his ultimate desire. He has a stronger, deeper desire. 
Nevertheless, not my will, I, but your will be done. So I would say to you, in, in, in following Jesus' example here, pray to God your deep desires. Pray to God your honest desires. You want healing? Pray for healing. You want, you know, you want a particular basketball team to win tonight? Pray for them to win tonight. I prayed last game, game six, that my team would win by four points and they lost. Right? So, sorry, that's so petty compared to what this is. But my, my, my point is, feel free to pray what you desire. God's your dad. He's in heaven asking, you know, what father gives a snake to a kid who asks for, for bread or stone for bread? And when they ask for fish, he gives them a snake. And you being evil, if you evil fathers do that, how much more will your heavenly father give you good things to those who ask? Ask for things and let him say no. It's not wrong for God to say no. Is it good that God said no to Jesus about the cup? Are you glad he said no? <laughs> right? Are you glad that God says no to you? Maybe not initially, but you should be ultimately, right? Whose plans are who's wiser, you or God? God? Whose plans are better, yours or God's? God. So, do you prefer that you, your your will would always be done, or God's? God's, right? Now, we don't understand it. I'm not saying we do. We're children, but we could still pray whatever we want, and then just say, ultimately, Father, what you will, not what we will. But I'll pray to you, and I'll ask for it. As long as I'm not asking for something sinful, it's fair game to ask for it. And if you desire it, I would call you on the authority of God's word to ask. So Jesus here prays, but his deeper desire is to, in obedience, want God's will. When you pray this way, you actually get fresh, God breathes fresh power into your prayer. Because you don't have to, oh, am I praying God's will or not? Do I know God's plan? Relax. You don't need to know God's plan. You just need to know that he's good and pray to him. And just say at the end of it, not what I will, but what you will. And what was God's will? That, that Jesus would what? Drink the cup or not drink the cup? What was God's will? That he would, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Punishment was, for our peace was on him, and we are, with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 10, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Praise God that the Father said no. Praise God that he denied Jesus his initial request and granted his deeper request. Praise God that God said, no, you must drink the cup. And then Jesus said, I delight to do your will. And we get the benefit. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And through Christ's death, we who are saved were made alive together with Christ through this cup because of his great love for us in Christ Jesus. Praise God. What a blessed Father we have. And I don't want you just to... Jesus is the star of the show here. But let's not let... Let's, let's, let's look at the Father for a second. Are you glad the Father said no? Yes. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Our Father loves us. Jesus doesn't make his initial request, though. I want you to notice this. Just before we go to our last point, our last point is short. Jesus doesn't make his initial request, let this cup pass from me, with any rebellion in his heart. 
Now, we know he's not rebellious because he says, not my will, but your will be done. But there's another reason, there's another clue here why we know Jesus is not rebellious. Now, when we talk to my kid, when I, when I'm, when my wife and I parent our kids, we tell them, obey first, then ask. So we'll tell them to do something, and then they want to talk about it, right? Well, what about this? Or what about my brother or sister? Well, they got to do this first, right? And, and they want to talk. I'm like, don't talk. Obey first, then talk. Or talk while you're obeying. Do it, and while you're doing it, now, now, now talk. But if you're just going to talk and stand there, stop. I want you to see that Jesus has that heart here. I was actually kind of, whoa, praise God, it's biblical. Um, now, why? Where's Jesus praying? And where? Where is he right now? Garden of Gethsemane. Why did he go to the garden? Who, who was sent out of the supper and is coming back with the police to arrest Jesus? Who is? Judas, right? And where's Judas going to go? He's going to go back to the room. And when he goes to the room, Jesus isn't there. Judas doesn't know where Jesus went. Jesus could have went to hide. Because remember, in front of a crowd, Jesus can't get arrested. They need to arrest him in secret. He could have avoided this whole cup, right? But where does he go? The Garden of Gethsemane in John 18, verses 1 and 2, and in Luke 22, we learn that Jesus frequented this garden. Judas knew that if he wasn't there, he had to think real nervous-like because he wants his money and they're there. Like, where is he? You said you were going to give him to us. He's not in the room. Judas being nervous, ah, where is he? Where would he be? Where would he be? Let's check the garden. Jesus knew that Judas would check the garden. Judas knows that the traitor is coming, and he goes there anyways. He's asking for the cup to be delivered in the midst of obeying. I'm going to where the cup is supposed to be fulfilled because I'm supposed to go where Judas can find me so that I could be arrested and die. So, Father, I'm obeying you, but I'm still going to ask you, because you're my dad, let this cup be passed from me. You see how obedient the Lord is here? He just trusts his dad. He's going to ask for another way, but he's not going to ask complaining on the side. I'm going to be neutral first, figure out the situation. Maybe I could convince my dad. No, I know what he wants me to do. I'm going to obey. And while I'm obeying, I'm going to keep praying that, it, that something changes. And so what do we need to do? We need to obey first. When you have a Bible verse, just obey. Don't think about the consequences yet. Well, if I obey, then this person's getting mad, and they're going to fight with this person, and then it's going to come back to me. And, you know, you start to, you have this complex web of ideas that we don't obey. That becomes an excuse to not obey. But no, obey first and then figure it out. Obey first, then wrestle, then pray, then reason, then appeal. So what's our response as a church family? We just need to shut our mouths for a second and worship the Lord, right? Amen. Perhaps a moment of silence is fitting just to let the weight of the work of Christ press on us. Maybe when I close in prayer, we'll have just a moment to let that cup press on our souls. Christian, this is the Jesus we follow. We stare at a Jesus who dies willingly and with joy for our good and for the glory of God. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand more than anything. Listen for this next minute if you're not a Christian. God made you and God owns you. You're accountable to him and we all have to give an answer to him. But you have the same problem I have. We're sinners. And because we're sinners rebelling against God, we deserve God's infinite eternal wrath on us forever. We deserve judgment. And yet God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins, to drink the cup, to be counted as the guilty one so that we guilty ones can be counted as innocent and righteous and forgiven. And so God is calling you 
to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus. God sent Jesus to offer you life. Jesus died to offer you life right here, right now. Turn from your sins and turn from your religion. Turn from your righteousness. Turn from your own goodness. And trust in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone for your salvation. And you can be saved today. You can be forgiven today. You can be declared righteous today. You can have your guilt washed away today. If you would turn and trust in him. Call out on him. Call out to him and he will save you. So that's the second one and the big one. Why did Jesus, why was he distressed? Because his disciples checked out on him. Number two, because his father denies him his request. Number three, lastly and very quickly, because his hour was quickly approaching. Because hour quickly approached. What hour? The hour of him being arrested and dying. Verse 41 says, Then he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He said, Enough. It's here. The time, time is up. The hour of the passion is here. The hour of suffering is here. It's too late to pray now. Now, you've got to imagine. Remember, this is the middle of the night, right? There's Jesus in the garden. You think they see Judas coming? Yeah, why, if you're traveling around at night, what do you need in that time? Torches, right? There's no flashlights there. There's no cell phones with your flashlight app. No, you, you have torches. And so if you're in the garden praying and all you have is moonlight and you see a, a, you see a bunch of torches coming your way, even in the distance, you could see them coming, right? So he's praying. They're sleeping. He's praying. He sees torches. He sees them. It's about at least half a mile to a mile away. He sees them coming from the distance. And he says... Enough. Time's up. No more praying for you guys. There's no more time. My traitor's here. It's time to go. And then from this point on, Jesus moves with resolve and strength. His time of weakness is now, his time of shakiness is gone. It's game time now. So right before the game time, he's nervous. Here it's coming. The traitor comes. The traitor's here. The torches are here. Game time. Game face is on. Jesus is ready to go. Let's do this. And he sets his face like flint. To get ready to go to the cross. And here the disciples fail. Right? They ran out of time. The disciples failed. They didn't listen to his warnings. They failed with their overconfidence. They failed in not knowing their weaknesses. And their need to pray. They fail in not getting strength that comes from God. In the face of temptation through prayer. And we fail as well. Don't we? We fail just like the disciples. We don't watch. We don't pray. And that's why we enter into more temptations than we should. We, like the disciples here, walk around with way too much spiritual confidence, coupled with a track record of sin after sin after sin, and failure after spiritual failure. And yet we walk around with our spiritual chests pumped out like, we got this. But we are failures just like the disciples were. But Jesus doesn't fail. They don't pray, Jesus prays in his agony. They don't receive strength, Jesus receives strength, strength in the face of his temptations. They're naively overconfident. The Son of God, who's fully God, fully man, is not overconfident in the garden. He's shaking and praying. He's asking for help. He's not overconfident. He's putting all his confidence in who? In the Father. He is not naively overconfident, but he's praying in great trouble and distress. Jesus couldn't fail because he was neither lazy nor delusional to neglect prayer as his power source. He now rises, D.A. Carson writes, with poise and advances to meet his betrayer. Let's go. Let's do this. The confidence of the Son of God. Jesus is now ready for the trial and the temptation he's about to undergo. He's ready now for the cup. And why was he ready? Because he prayed. He was ready because he communed with God. 
He was ready because he, set, he saw the joy set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So what do we need to do? We need to keep trusting and following the one who drank the cup for us. You fail. I fail. The disciples failed. Jesus succeeds. And in his success, we find strength to succeed ourselves. So keep trusting and following the one who drank the cup for us and absorbed every single bit of condemnation and wrath from God that we deserve for our rebellion. D.A. Carson writes again, in the first garden, Garden of Eden, in the first garden, not your will but mine, changed paradise to the desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Right? That's what Adam and Eve said. Not your will but mine. Now, not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it but transforms the, the desert into the kingdom and brings the man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Many of us are under trial now in our church, right? And the rest of us, if you're not in trial now, you will be soon. But we who are in Christ, we know our future, don't we? Knowing the future doesn't make trials easy, but it makes perseverance possible. Amen. Because the Father said no, to the Son, and because the Son joyfully did the Father's will, there is no Gethsemane for us in our trials. There is no cup, there is no drop to drink. In our deepest distress, the cup of wrath has forever passed over us. You will never, I'm not minimizing your distress, it's not Jesus' distress, but you need to understand, brothers and sisters, in the midst of your deepest trials, that the cup has passed over you, because it did not pass over him. So whatever you're going through, praise God, there is no cup for you. Amen. Father, thank you that there is no cup of wrath for us because it was all drank by our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would rest in his death and resurrection for us. We thank you for celebrations like we had two Sundays ago and we'll have in two more Sundays, the Lord's Supper, where we, we don't drink the cup of wrath, we drink the cup that establishes the new covenant, the cup that symbolizes the death of Jesus for us. What a Savior we have. We pray, God, that you would help us to feel the weight of the distress and the anguish of your Son, that we might appreciate even more the cross of Christ that defines our lives and defines our church and defines our ministry to our neighbors, to the nations, and to our family. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.